when my uh, parents were pregnant with me, and actually I suppose I should say when my mom was pregnant with me, right? My dad had very little part in that. Um, but when they were pregnant with me, my mom was pregnant with me, um, they were trying to figure out names for me. As if I was a boy, it would be one thing, a girl, another thing. Well, obviously I was born a boy, and so my name was Daniel. My, my dad insists that they named me Daniel after Daniel in the Bible. My mom's like, nope, we named you after your great uncle Dan. It's kind of a, kind of a marital struggle there over where my name actually came from. But they've been married 60 years, so hey, we're working through it. <laughs> but I, I, I asked them, um, I said, so what would you have named me if I was going to be a girl? And they said, well, the name we had p- picked out was, was Margaret. I'm like, Margaret? Like, no offense, Margaret, to your name. <laughs> Margaret Thatcher, you know, strong woman. But Margaret, like, I just, would they have called me Maggie or Margie or Large Marge? You know? I don't know, it's just so weird. So I'm really thankful that I came out a boy, no offense, and my name's Dan. Just, just Dan. You know, it's interesting to survey and even ask people, like, why did you choose the names for your kids that you did, Right? And, and because it changes so often, right? The, the, the names that were popular in my generation, like Rick or Blaine or Craig or Lisa or Pam, like you don't find babies today named that. It's like, oh, this is baby Pam. No, no, that's like my generation. And you don't have people in my generation named Barb or Doris or Shirley. They just, you just don't. It's just generational changes with names. Sometimes we name people after ancestors, like at least my mom thinks I'm named after an ancestor. Um, sometimes we name our kids because we just like the name, you know, like Guinevere. Isn't that like a, just a cool-sounding name? Sometimes people name their kids after food, like like apple. <laughs> like the, the, the popular ones today are Ava and Sophia and Liam. Those are apparently the most popular in 2018. Point is that we, we t- typically choose names based on preference, or tradition. In the Bible, the names work very differently. That is, they embody reality, or a prophetic truth, or they embody the character of the person with the name. That is, they have tremendous amount of meaning. It's not like God said, well, Guinevere sounds cool. It's like, no, it has, has meaning. So, so Adam, you know, probably a derivative of Adama in Hebrew, which, is, which means red earth. Can you imagine? My name is dirt. <laughs> I don't, you know, but it meant something because he was formed out of the ground, out of the red clay of the ground. And Eve, her name means living or life and because she was the, the mother of, of all, all living. You get to Abram, and God changes his name to Abraham because he was going to be the father of many peoples, and he was. He embodied that prophetic truth. His grandson, Jacob, his name means in Hebrew, supplanter, or someone who takes the place of another. And he actually came out of the womb, reaching for his twin brother's uh, heel, and in life took his place as the recipient of the birthright. So he lived up to his name. And we could go on and on and on. Of course, Jesus, his name means Yahweh saves. He was and did exactly what his name means. Yahweh saves his people. So names have tremendous amounts of meaning. They embody truth. And that's um, certainly the case when it comes to the sacred name of the Lord. And by the name of the Lord, I mean Yahweh. 
uh, a name that's still so revered amongst the Jewish people that they refuse to say it out loud. They'll use a replacement word like Adonai. So they don't even say it as we in the church oftentimes sing it or say it with greater sense of freedom. There is such a connection. Let's just call it a really, really close association between God's name and his being. So much so that to blaspheme his name is to blaspheme his very being. Which is why um, the third commandment of the ten is in place. You know, thou shalt not take the Lord, your God's name in vain. The name Lord there is, is all capitalized. We I mean that's a sacred name. It's to blaspheme the name is to blaspheme the very presence and the character of God himself. So there's no way of, of exalting how important the name of Yahweh is in the Bible or should be to God's people. The place in the Old Testament where it really fills out, if you will, the character of what the name means, I think more than any other, it's kind of, for me, it's the epicenter of the Old Testament um, where the glory of God passes before Moses and God declares who his, what he declares his name, but following that, his character. This is it, and it's, it's going to lead us into Ezekiel in just a couple of moments. Many of you have read this, seen this, I've preached on this before. But you got to keep repeating it to get it. Let's read it a little bit slowly. The Lord, that is Yahweh, passed before him, Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord. Twice he uses his sacred name, Yahweh, Yahweh. And now here come, comes the character aspects of who he is. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, and that is a big, huge but. Rephrase. <laughs> that is a big, huge, adversative conjunction. It's going to point us in the absolute opposite direction. And he says, but who will by no means clear the guilty... That is, there will be no acquitting people of sin. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers. Visiting isn't like going to a house and knocking on the door. It's, it's punishing. Visiting or punishing the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. You have in this single verse this massive tension. These two sides of God's being summed up in his name, Yahweh. The one side we can... Attached to his love or, 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 or grace. You, you see the words. It's like compassion, grace, mercy, abounding, overflowing love, uh, forgiveness and faithfulness. He's, he's forgiving of sin. That's, that's, that's on the love side. That's part of who he is is Yahweh, the Lord, the Lord. And on the other side, there's this, there's a sense of justice um, where God punishes sin. He doesn't let things go. He, he doesn't just simply wave them off or, or, or sweep them under a rug. He doesn't do that. He, he punishes sin. So you have these like two sides of God's character summed up in the name Yahweh. And as I said, there's, there's like this tension between these two. How can God forgive and yet not acquit? How can he be abounding in love but punish sin? How can those two things coalesce and resolve themselves? This tension 
between these two parts of God's great glorious character, summed up in the name Lord, do not get resolved through the whole history of the Old Testament. They remain in place. How can God love us eternally, forgivingly? At the same time, he is going to enact perfect justice on sin. Those are the two sides of his character summed up in his name in this verse. Those are the two sides of God's character summed up in the name Lord that are going to come screaming onto the stage of history in Ezekiel's time. The warning here as to who God is, part of it, at least the last part of verse 6 is a warning, they come into full view on the pages of history through the prophetic writing of Ezekiel. The reason I point that out and start this way is because there's this phrase that's very, very um, frequent in your Old Testament, and it's the exact phrase, I am the Lord. That is, I am Yahweh. It's found, for you Bible geek types, that phrase is found 188 times in your Old Testament. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. 188 times. Of that 188 times, 84 of those are found in the book of Ezekiel. Almost half. Meaning he wants us to understand, as he's, God wants us to understand through Ezekiel, that this is one of the major focuses of the book. The Lord is declaring and he's showing, he's proving that I am the Lord. And both of these aspects of his character, both his love and his justice, come into play. I want to look at both of those sides and then work at the resolution on the justice side, and by the way, I'm not going to go through all 84 of them. We don't have time. But you realize that the justice of God's name brings down judgment on his people for their rebellion against him. That is, they have broken covenant with the Lord repeatedly. And so this is what he says. And I want you to just listen to the repetition. This will help you um, just... It'll reinforce the the truthfulness of this. Speaking about Jerusalem, he says, chapter 5, Thus shall my anger spend itself, and I will vent my fury upon them and satisfy myself, and they shall know that I am the Lord. Speaking about idol worship, chapter 6, verse 13, And you shall know that I am Yahweh, I am the Lord. When their slain lie among their idols around the altars. Speaking against the land. Chapter 7. And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know I am Yahweh. Speaking against the corrupt leadership that was leading the people to break covenant with God. Chapter 11. And you shall know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. Chapter 12, speaking about exile and the desolation of the cities, he says, And the inhabited cities shall be laid waste, and the land shall become a desolation, and you shall know 
that I am the Lord. Speaking against the false prophets, therefore you shall no more see false visions nor practice divination. I will deliver my people out of your hand, that is the hands of the false prophets, and you shall know that I am the Lord. Speaking against the elders, and I will set my face against that man. I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of my people, and you shall know that I am the Lord. All of this is directed to Israel. As silver is melted in a furnace, so you shall be melted in the midst of it. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I have poured out my wrath upon you. That's just Israel. You get the, the justice side of God is now coming into human history and they're pay, paying for their sins. Those are some pretty remarkable words. Fury, vengeance, Wrath, that's a part of who God is, part of the name Yahweh. I am Yahweh. I will establish justice. But he goes on after chapter 25 to then point at the nations. It's like, you guys don't get off the hook. Just a couple. Speaking to the nation of Ammon, I will make Rabbah, that is the chief city of that nation, a pasture for camels and Ammon a fold for flocks, then you will know that I am the Lord. It's like, I'm going to reduce you to a place where there's cattle roaming. Speaking to the nation of Moab, I will execute judgments upon Moab, then they will know that I am the Lord. Speaking against the Philistines, I will execute great vengeance on them with wrathful rebukes, then they will know that I am the Lord when I lay my vengeance upon them. To the nation of Sidon, Behold, I am against you, O Sidon. I will manifest my glory in your midst. Notice glory is attached here to justice and vengeance. And they shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in her. Egypt and the land of Egypt shall be a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am Yahweh. So here you have all these oracles of things to come where God is going to execute justice on the people of Israel who have departed from his ways and the nations. And all of those oracles were fulfilled. That is, it it happened. So what are we supposed to learn some 2,500, 600 years later? (laughs) We're supposed to know that he is the Lord. And part of being a Lord is to be a minister of justice. That's something we have to know. Not just know, but like you have to know that God is a just God. And that he will, by nature of his own character, like he's so committed to his name. It's the highest value in the entire universe. Which it's not just commitment to a name, it's commitment to his very being. That he will, by nature of himself... By nature of his glory, he will execute justice. We have to know that about him. It's kind of important to know that side of God. Otherwise, the other sides don't make sense. I had a great and still have a great dad growing up. Um, And not everybody has that. And I know for a fact, because he said it and he proved it, that he loved me. He loved me and my two sisters. He um, provided for us. He went to work every day. I worked a job for 37 years to put food on the table for us. He, he protected me at a number of points in my life. And I knew for a fact that 
If my life was in jeopardy, he'd lay down his life for mine. That's the kind of love I know that my dad has for me. But there's another side to my dad, too, that I became very acutely aware of, especially when I got lippy with my mom or smacked my kid sister in the head with a shovel. That event I can neither confirm nor deny ever happened, but I did certain things where I knew like when dad came home from work, I could hear his car coming up the driveway. I'm just like, oh, no. And I'd just go into my room and weep. Because there is a just side of my father. And looking back, and it was kind of painful at times. My back end took some beatings. That's probably why there's not a lot of it left. <laughs> I don't look back with regret at all over my father. It's a moral responsibility to deal with injustice or immoral actions. He was acting in a manner of justice. You have to know that side of the Lord. And not just know that side of the Lord. Like there's, a, there's a part of God's justice that's absolutely beautiful. It's not a, to be looked at as a negative thing. Although if you're living in unrepentant sin, it's certainly going to come across negative if it falls on you. Because we, we have this deep, every single human being that's alive has some sense of justice. We know it. Whether it's somebody cutting in line in front of us, we know, oh, that's wrong. And we, don't, we want justice to be served, every one of us. And the reason for that is, the, is that we're created in God's image. And part of God's image, part of his name, his character is he is a just and righteous God. And created in his image, we have that same desire to see justice served. I, we were driving down to uh, San Jose, my wife and I think Isaac was in the car too. And we're driving in the, the second lane, the other lane is the carpool lane. And this one was empty. And we're driving along, going at the speed of traffic, and this car goes flying by. And I don't know exactly how fast he was going, but it had to be well over 110 miles an hour. Just like, shoo. It was a, I think it was a Nissan GTR, like a $100,000 car, right? Just whew. My first thought was like, man, where's the CHP when you need them? Where's Dave Herrera? Is he eating donuts? What's he doing? You know, I just, I just wanted to see once somebody get caught, right? Right behind him, three seconds later, there was a Corvette and Chevy driver. Just shoo, same, same speed. Boom. I'm just like, you know, if I was to do that, I'd get a ticket like that. But they, they get away with it. Three, four seconds later, and there's a CHP officer. I'm like, yeah. well, I mean, let's back up. What do you think I felt at that moment? It's just like, yes, someone's getting it. Justice is served today. We want that. We, 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 that's part of how we're created is we want justice, just not for ourselves, right? If you're late to work and you're speeding, you're like going, oh, man, is there a CHP officer around here? As you're speeding, it's okay. You want justice for others, but not yourself. That's because our sense of justice is just twisted by our self-preserving self-centeredness. That's, but we want that justice. And to know that it comes from the fact that God himself is beautifully just. But when it comes to his justice and sinful people, that's where the rub is. Is that he has to, by nature of his very character, and to uphold the glory of his name, he has to punish every sin. And that's part of the point of what we must come to know. Have a deep sense of 
belief and um, understanding, having it permanently etched in our hearts that God is a just God, and he does um, serve justice for every sin. Nobody gets out of it. Nobody dies and gets away with it because they come back, and you've got to stand trial for everything that you have done, everyone. That's his, that's his, his justice. And understanding it from your heart um, should have a pretty dramatic effect, almost like understanding my dad had an effect on my life, that certain things I'm just not going to do. It should like, motivate us to, to do what's right. If we find ourselves doing that which is wrong, it should motivate humble and quick repentance. It's like, I don't want to live in this place. Um, on the positive side, it, it should also bring us a certain amount of consolation and freedom. I mean, to know, because it's very frustrating when you see an injustice and you don't see it righted. It's it just a human being to carry frustration when they don't see justice happening. But for the believer who knows God is just, it's part of Yahweh's character, we can really rest in the fact that he is going to serve justice perfectly and fully. And that releases us from having to take matters into our own hands and to commit acts of vengeance. So his justice serves in a very good way for us. Like we can actually let things go. Like should we be responsible and seek justice and at appropriately defined social justice? Yes. But the best that we can hope for is a temporary advance. Someday, he's going to set things right forever. So that's his, that's his justice side. I am the Lord. That's part of his character embodied in the name Yahweh. But if we were left there, if we stop, if I just say amen right now, you're all going to go, wow. You just left us in the dark, hopeless, like i got to pay for all my sin. Well, that brings us to the other side. We also find this repeated phrase, I am the Lord, attached to his loving, gracious, and forgiving side. So listen to these, just a few. Verse 62, he says, I will establish my covenant life's new covenant, with you. And by the way, the steadfast love of the name, the chesed, that's like, the, like the, the word in the Old Testament for grace or steadfast, unfailing love. It's like, and it's covenant love. So he's saying, I'm going to establish a covenant with you and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's talking about reestablishing relationship. I'm going to make it happen. It's been broken by you and I am going to Reestablish a covenant. This is a new relationship, a new covenant. That's, that's part of God's, God's heart. Verse 23 of chapter 17. On the mountain height of Israel, I will plant. Now, let me just, don't read, continue on. Just listen for a second. Context of chapter 17. Like, the prophet gives this image of a great cedar tree. And the cedar tree is Israel. And it's being broken and uprooted. It's a picture of exile. And right here in verse uh, 23, he says, basically, God's going to take a sprig of that cedar tree and he's going to plant it in the ground. That is a messianic promise. That is someone's to come who's going to change things. So with that in mind, 
He's going to put this sprig in the ground that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I'm going to make it right through this messianic person. And he's even more explicit in the next text, chapter 34. He says, I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Now, for those who are newer to the Bible, by the time he writes this, David has been dead for four centuries. He's not talking about literal David. He's talking about the son of David. So, my servant David, and he shall feed them, and he shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. This is a love side. This is the abounding and faithfulness and forgiving and merciful and gracious and compassionate. Another text. So you have this, I'm going to establish a new covenant, a new relationship, and it, 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 it hinges on this prince, this shepherd, this son of David. And then this text. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. This is a raising to life, death, or excuse me, life out of ashes. Out of the graves, I will put my own spirit in you, and you shall stand on your two feet. This is the valley of vision, or valley of dry bones. This is astounding. Like 600 years before Jesus, there's already this oracle about, I'm going to establish a new covenant. This oracle about a shepherd that's going to come, that's going to make all things right. And also, I'm going to put my spirit in you, and you're going to live. It's like... He's already laying out the contours of the New Testament. This is what God's going to do to resolve the issues. But this is a side of God we have to know. Not just that he is perfectly just and will satisfy his wrath completely and perfectly for every sin. But his love is flourishing over overflowing, forgiving love too. We have to know that. We have no hope, no joy, no anything if we don't get that with our hearts. That's two sides of God's name. Perfect and awesome justice and overflowing, abounding, forgiving love. And he already like kind of projected for us how he's going to resolve it. Because just as these two Aspects of God's character come into full view in Ezekiel's time. The fullest expression of those two sides of God ever seen is found in the unity of the cross itself. Where Jesus, the one, takes upon himself as our substitute the wrath of the many, therefore satisfying justice perfectly, And in so doing, unleashes God's steadfast, chesed love for us who believe. The only resolution between those two aspects of God's character that are in bitter tension 
through the Hebrew scriptures come to perfect focus and resolution when Jesus gives his life. And justice is satisfied and love is unleashed. There's no other way. Either he pays or you pay. That he, he is the resolution for us. And what's equally remarkable, I forgot one. Oh, I didn't. What's equally remarkable is that on the basis of what Jesus did to resolve that tension to satisfy justice, to pay for my sins, all of them, past, present, future, and also to unleash God's love so that nothing can separate me from the love of Christ and nothing in all creation, is that on the basis of that, it's this, Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. In my reading of scripture, there's only one name that is above every name, and that is the name of Yahweh. On the basis of what Jesus has done in resolving these two great character aspects of who God is in love and justice, he has been exalted to the highest place, given that sacred name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That is all realities, not a single place of existence outside of those spheres of heaven, earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ, what's the the next word, is Lord, I think if his New Testament was written in Hebrew, I think it would have been the sacred name of Yahweh. They're going to acknowledge that he is the name of the Lord. So it's appropriate, I believe, for us as Christians as we go through life to acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. And he embodies both of those character aspects. He loves us completely and eternally. At the same time, he is also one who's going to come and judge the living and the dead. And as we face different crises and and, um, challenges in life, we have to know and we have to hear in our own heads with our faith that Jesus is Lord. I am Yahweh. So if you're facing disease, then you hear him say, I am the Lord. Remember who I am. You're battling depression. You have to know and believe in your head. Jesus is Lord. He is Yahweh. You're facing death or loss. It's just to know and hang on to the very truth that I am the Lord. Jesus is Yahweh. A tower of refuge for us is his name. All of that summed up in a simple yet profound name. I pray that, um, man, you know him. I pray you, we know his justice, but we also know his love that conquered justice through the cross. Perfect uh, segue into the Lord's Supper. Um, he gave us this bread and this cup to remind us of the new covenant in his blood, something that Ezekiel talked about, um, on the basis of which he gave us his spirit. So today as we come, just remember your shepherd. Remember the Lord. Remember the name. And come with a sense of humble joy that God himself took our place on the cross and took our punishment so that we could be loved and freed.
As I pray, if I could have those who are um, serving communion um, come on up. Just a reminder, these are elements um, that Jesus gave as a, as a repeated reminder. On the night he was betrayed, he took what used to be the Seder dinner, and he held up the, the bread and said, this is my body, which is for you. And he held up the cup and said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, um, which is poured out for the remission, the acquittal of your sins. And as often as you take it, be reminded of who I am and what I've done and to live in the freedom that he bought for us. So as you come, think on these things. And um, if you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to come, even if you're not a member of our church. Um, But this is a table reserved for those who are disciples. There is gluten-free if you just ask for it. And um, let's pray and let's worship God through the the Lord's Supper. Father, I thank you for um, the gift of the Lord's Supper, which is a very sacred event and um, a sacred meal to remind us of the heart of the gospel and the heart of who you are as a God who loves us so much to pour out his life, and yet a God who is so just that you um, had to pour out your wrath on another so that we could go free. Help us in our worship now, in Christ's name, amen.